We're just trying to build a sustainable community that is led by founders for other founders. As we go forward with starting Clee, we've started to see small groups of people who are spinning out and doing other things. And we love it. We don't want to run that. We want to see that happen. And that's ultimately my goal. I want to see people really get to know each other, support each other, and have a continuous dialogue. Let's discover the Cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem. We are telling the stories of its entrepreneurs and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we're exploring what people are building in the land. I'm Jeffrey Stern, here with my fellow cartographer, V. Tegan. And we're coming to you live from Cleveland, the first city to be lit by electricity. That's got to be the same electricity that is powering this podcast here today and the energy that we'll be bringing to this conversation. Wow. Powerful and electrifying things start in Clee. Do you mean start in Clee? No, that would be the company founded by today's guest. Ah, yes. Ed, a product leader, a three-time founder, a startup mentor, and a design aficionado. Ed has more than 20 years product leadership experience with multiple B2B and B2C products. He's here with us in Cleveland, and we're very excited to talk with him. And we'll get to that interview right after this message. Hello, everyone. A brief note before the show today. Since we've recorded this podcast, Ed has announced to the world he will actually be relocating to the San Francisco Bay Area in 2021. And as a steward of starting Klee and building up the founder community here in Cleveland, I wanted to share some of Ed's parting thoughts as a preamble to this episode. For Northeast Ohio's startup community to continue its positive trajectory, Ed is encouraging us to think about three things. The first is to do something. Talk is cheap, press is superfluous, social media posts are inconsequential. Actual impact comes from action. In community building, action comes in the form of organizing, advocating, and connecting. Bring people together, give them a voice, and facilitate their relationships. The second is to be selfless. If you're stepping into this with an expectation to boost your profile, improve your image, find customers, develop deal flow, or any other selfish outcome, then you are likely the wrong person for the job. You will hurt the community by trying to be involved. Founders are smart and nothing is more precious to them than time. They will sniff out motivations and they will avoid you, your events and your machinations. Only the uninitiated or uninformed will fall prey and shame on you for taking advantage of them. And the third is to protect and to advocate. In developing communities, one of the vital and lacking resources is tribal knowledge about who is safe to work with and who is going to try and take advantage of you. If you want to help lead our community, use your platform and voice to call out instances of abuse, conflicts of interests, and misinformation. Expose unfortunate truths, like how Ohio's seed stage valuations lag behind nearly 40 other states, and address the challenges we face head on. It is imperative for the future of our region that we protect founders, that we serve founders, that we fund founders, and that we attract more founders. It is up to us to make this happen. With that, please enjoy our conversation with Ed. Welcome, Ed. We're so happy to have you here on the show. Hey, thanks guys for having me. It sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, I was actually listening to your podcast uh, just before this, and you taught me how to build a product in seven days. Crazy. <laughs> yeah, well, I started to teach you. Uh, I got a long, a long ways to go with that series before it's really worthwhile, I think. It kind of made me think about your background where you started out in products and now you are really diving into entrepreneurship, as we know. What kind of led to that? Yeah, so um, I actually started my career in customer service. Like I joined my first startup as a customer service person, um, answering support chats in like the year 2000 before support chats were really a thing. So I, you know, I basically, I basically grew um, from there to being more technical and then eventually running the product organization at that company. And that's sort of how I got started in into both product management and entrepreneurship. You know, they kind of came hand in hand for me because that company was growing and, and needed product leadership, but it was a startup. So, you know, to me, uh, and I might be a special case, but I, I kind of view, you know, product management 
to a large extent, almost as being the CEO of a product, right? Like you, you, the process of creating a product, maintaining it, uh, improving it, actually usually aligns pretty well with what you go through uh, CEOing a new startup. So I think they go go along uh, together pretty well. I would have to agree, having spent some time at tech startups myself and can see how customer service is really enhanced with technology mm-hmm. just on the way that systems are designed. And so to you, what does it mean to be a designer? I think being a designer is about, you know, it's really being someone who thinks about design actively, right? Anybody really can be a designer. There's sort of a mentality that comes with it more than any specific thing you do. It's more of about, you know, seeing a car driving down the road and going, hey, you know, I think I could improve that or wouldn't it be cool if it looked this way or a website, you know, the same sort of thing. I wish it acted this way. Or, you know, if you're more artistic going in that sort of direction, I think design is really a state of mind. Uh, So to be a designer, there are so many different types of of designers out there. To me, I, I worry very much about software design, right? And so again, it's it's really seeing, you know, the the application we're in right now, recording this podcast and seeing three or four different ways to improve it and and being able to put pen to paper to create something new. That's that's how I think of a designer. Amazing. You have all this experience from technical to design to being a podcaster. (laughs) Tell us, what have you built? Yeah, so I've been doing this, and by this I mean, you know, waving my arms around, um, being an entrepreneur for just over 20 years now. So, you know, I've, I've been part of three startups that that I you know I helped start or started myself, you know two two companies that acquired two of those startups, now a nonprofit and a podcast and and so many different things. It's kind of hard to it's kind of hard to quantify it or or really encapsulate it into a, a short answer. To me, I, I really love building things that help people, whether that's a software product or you know a piece of content or an organization like with. Starting Clee. Um, so, yeah, that's hopefully someday when I retire, I can look back and say, you know, these are all the different things I built and this is how it helped, how they helped people because ultimately that's my goal. Yeah. So it seems as though you're really inspired uh, to build to help others. And that has brought you to a lot of different industries. What's the hardest industry that you've worked in and what are some of the things you've learned? Yeah, so most of my career has been in fintech, right? So like B2B enterprise financial technology software. It's not a real sexy space, right? Like it's it's kind of a, a space that a lot of people think about as behind the scenes almost, right? It's not a cool um, consumer product that everybody has to use. So, you know, it can be a bit more challenging to me to build those types of products because it's it's even harder to uh, sort of communicate what you're doing and and what the value is so yeah to, to me the hardest uh, the hardest uh, space is is fintech and that be, that's because you have like this triumvirate of security is a huge concern right like financial data or money itself is an incredibly dangerous thing to be touching because, you know, hackers or mistyped account numbers or whatever the case might be. And then you have like this accuracy challenge, right? Everything, software is inherently held together with duct tapes, uh, duct tape and string, right? Like it's, it's, usually something that you build fast and get out there. That's the whole point of MVP and lean methodology. But in fintech, that kind of goes against the grain because if you have a mostly functional prototype, um, it's not going to work for, for, for a financial technology company. And then, you know, the third case is like the capital requirements for, for fintech are really difficult because you have this level of accuracy and security 
and completeness to the application that's required. That means you need more time to bake it in the oven, which means you need more cash to put into developing it. And so that makes it an extra challenge on top of the others. But it can be really rewarding. And and ultimately, you know, I think the especially for small businesses or, or enterprises, the financial aspects of of the businesses really can benefit from software a ton, right? If you look at QuickBooks and uh, accounting, right? Like how could you even run a business nowadays without the software that exists around accounting? It's ultimately the thing that keeps the gears turning in society, right? Yes, (laughs) having uh, some experience in FinTech, I know my way around pivoting quite a bit. (laughs) And I also think about the goals within my business quite often. And for you, someone that has spent time as an entrepreneur and has experience maybe exiting a company, what are your goals going in and what experience have you had when leaving a company? Yeah, so um, there are many ways to part ways with a, a startup. You know, there are the kind of kind shutdowns where no one gets hurt and you just walk away. And then there are the, you know, I've raised $2 million of investor capital and I have to shut this down and dealing with the issues associated with that, which I could do a whole podcast on. I actually think I am. And then <laughs> and then there's this like aqua hire nature, right, of, of potential exits where you have a great team who's built a cool product but didn't really figure out how to achieve market sustainability and you get acquired by another company who simply wants you for that team and maybe a little of the tech. And then, you know, on top of that, you've got your sort of full out, you've built something amazing, lots of people are using it. We want that technology and your team and all of the customers as part of our company. And so they're like these varying degrees. You know, I, I've taken part in, I think, all four of those and a little more at, at this point in my life. And I think, you know, being acquired as a phrase is not what you expect it to be, regardless of, of how you think about it. You know, if you're lucky enough to make be making, you know, $100 million on the sale of your company, maybe you don't care, but it's going to be hard. You know, the process is long and you need an incredibly competent lawyer that you trust or set of lawyers that you trust to be able to get through that process. And, you know, you never know what's going to happen. As I say, with fundraising, it's the same with, with a, you know, an acquisition. Don't pop the corks until the money's already spent because, you know, you don't, you don't know what's going to happen. I've been part of multiple transactions, both fundraising, exit, partnerships, where, you know, the ink is is dry and the papers have been signed, but uh, it falls apart. So it's definitely not what you expect. And it usually ends up hurting one way or another. I want to draw on something that you mentioned there because I don't want it to get lost. You say you might want a lawyer or a set of lawyers. And after talking to one lawyer, you might understand why you want to talk to a couple. Can you really dig into that experience on how important Mm -hmm. it is for founders to do their due diligence um, when making financial decisions? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm not being paid by any lawyers to to talk about this, but you know, from my experience, there's a couple things for founders who are reaching this stage of a company or are reaching this stage in their career that they need to think about. First off, like we talk about all the time, and you and I've talked about, Tegan, you are not your company, right? No matter how embedded you are into the business and how much you think about yourself as one entity with the company, that is not the case. And you need to take care of yourself first and foremost. And so, you know, to me, having a really great lawyer that you can rely on as an individual as a business person, I think is really important because your job as, you know, a CEO of a startup, really, you have a fiduciary responsibility to, you know, do what is best for the investors in a whole sense, like as a whole, but you also need to be thinking about yourself. And so understanding the dissonance that exists there and having uh, a lawyer that is not your corporate counsel as as a personal counsel 
is really important when you get to, you know, discussions about being acquired or having a, a, you know, a painful breakup of founders or whatever the case might be. And then, you know, one reason why I really advocate for startup founders to have a firm that they work with, you know, first off, any uh, startup lawyer that you want to work with hopefully has startup experience, right? Like they have helped companies raise money and they've helped companies exit and they've helped shut companies down because that experience is how they know what to tell you to do and how and how to help you. If they don't have that experience because you hired a family lawyer, guess what? They're not going to tell you to do the right things. And I've I've lost a lot of money over things that I had the wrong lawyer for early on in my career and I've learned that lesson. It's better to spend the money now and do it right than it is to lose it later because they didn't tell you to file a thing or they told you, you know, the wrong change to a document. So having a firm uh, or having an individual lawyer that is experienced is great, but I also advocate for having a lawyer that's part of a larger firm because not every lawyer is an expert in all aspects of being a counsel for for a startup. A really great business lawyer who can help you raise money and do partnership deals may not know how to do employment law. And so when you have to fire your co-founder or something like that, they're not going to have the right answer necessarily. And so the great part about having a lawyer who's part of a firm is they can refer you to another lawyer within that same cover in the same firm and really be able to help you. Honestly, the biggest advice I can give around uh, legal counsel is pay for the best that you can get. Like you're going to get what you pay for. And it really is important unless you're, unless you're just so early that you're not even sure you want to do this. Like it's worth it. Yeah, I'm an early stage founder. And just the other day, I was thinking I might have to start a law firm one day because I need like 10 <laughs> lawyers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely there are lots of lawyer jokes we could tell, right? But honestly, there's there's just there's nothing better than having a really good lawyer who's on your side. They not only can tell you what you're doing wrong in a constructive way, which I've been told many, many times, but they can help you navigate when you have done something wrong. And it's just really important. Ed, there's uh, one thing you mentioned there I wanted to, to dive a little deeper on. In the way that entrepreneurs are not their startups, Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen that in people before. Uh, it's a hard thing to reconcile, I think. Yeah. How do you advise um, entrepreneurs who are like simultaneously tasked with, you know, selling themselves and often as the company and, and vision, but maintaining a healthy distance from it at the same time? Yeah. So there, there really is this um, cognitive dissonance that comes with being a founder. You have this sort of yin and yang of wanting to have your business appear as though it's got incredible momentum and is doing really well while also knowing that it's falling apart around you at all times. And that applies to to all aspects. I mean, you are a human being who has a family and needs to pay the bills and um, needs to, to buy milk bones for your dog. And so you have, you have needs, uh, not only financially, but, you know, emotionally. And the business is extremely demanding on all of those aspects, your time, your personal finances, your your sort of personal mental bandwidth, your emotions. And so what happens fairly quickly for someone who's extremely excited about starting a company is they pour their self into it. They pour their whole worth into the company because honestly, that that is the magic of being a founder of a new startup is you can do that and move things more quickly than anyone would ever expect. And so that's amazing. The problem is that if you do that for an extended period of time and you do it too long, which is an unquantifiable date, right? Then you start to run into the issues associated with that. You start to say, this customer canceled, I must be bad at my job, right? This investor decided to say no after I thought things were going re- really well. You know, I, I must not be competent. 
you know, my, my co-founder decided to leave. And, and so taking all of these things and applying them to yourself is just not a healthy thing, right? It's not, it's not something that anyone should be doing. But I, I've been there multiple times over. And it is sort of the nature of the beast when you've, you've put so much of yourself into it. So figuring, figuring out a way to separate that and, and really encapsulate or, or, uh, I'm not sure what the word is. Uh, separate yourself from it, right? Like insulate yourself from the business and and have the ability to step back and understand that is important. I, you know, to me, you guys have probably met Anna. My wife and I have been together since you know I joined that first startup, and honestly, she's been a really great sounding board and reminder to me, like to not let those things happen. You know, I've I've built a really great network of of some mentors, some investors who've turned into mentors and friends, and they have objective angles that they can tell me the truth, right? And I think that is uh, honestly one of the most important ways to, to escape that issue is to just have people who are not involved in the business who can sort of call you out for it, because it's hard to see that pit before you fall into it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to just actually kind of pull on a few of the threads I think we've yeah. we've tugged on here, you know, speaking to support for founders and kind of the arc of your career. When you tie it together, uh, I think it transitions very well to talking about starting Klee and mm-hmm. uh, the work you're doing now. And so I'd love if you could just tell us a little bit more about, you know, the problem that you've identified uh, and the work you're doing with starting yeah. Klee to, to bridge the gap and, and solve it. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I started my career a long time ago now, um, and it, it was in Northeast Ohio. It was in Worcester, which is my hometown. That's that's how I got started at that first company. You know, so I've been part of this ecosystem for as long as the startup ecosystem here has existed, largely. And you know, to me, I you know, I've moved away a couple of times. I, I lived in Chicago for a while. I spent a bunch of time in the Bay Area, in in Boulder, in Austin, in New York, in you know, a few other places. And what amazes me and continues to ma- to amaze me today is that each of those areas has a very distinct culture amongst its startup community, and those cultures actually have a much more uh, deeper sense of being developed. Um, and what I mean by that is not they have more companies or they, they have more larger companies. That may be true or may not be true. But what they have is they have this community uh, sense. They have founders who are actually spending time to uh, get to know one another, to help each other. And they're doing it on a continual basis without anyone telling them to do it, Right. It's it's this grassroots organization of you know fifteen founders in Boulder um, who came out of a TechStars company who get together or came out of a TechStars accelerator program and get together every week for a dinner right like no one told them to do that they're doing it because they are getting something out of it and they're being able to help others uh, while doing it and and so as I spent time in these other cities you know I really grew to understand that these things exist. And then when I, I moved back most recently in 2013, what I really noticed was even after, at that point, 13 years of being part of this community, we still didn't have it, right? We still didn't have anything like it. We had pockets of it. We had tribalism pretty rife uh, throughout our ecosystem where you'd have, you know, a start mark community of, of people who get together there, launch house, Bizdom, maybe the jumpstart uh, network um, where these little groups of people would get together, but everything's a numbers game. And in this case, if you've got, you know, 20 companies taking part in a co-working space and two or three of them, which is a good conversion rate, are getting together on a periodic basis, that's not really useful. And so because you had all these like little pockets of organizations and communities within them, nobody was really getting much out of it. And so 
one of the things that I, I sort of set out to do around 2013 was try to bridge those gaps. So I was mentoring at some of the accelerator programs here in the area. And it was amazing to me that, you know, almost all of the companies in each of the programs did not know any of the companies in the other programs. And, you know, they were like four blocks away from each other, but somehow they didn't know each other and they never even talked. So what I started to do back then is I started to do a weekly coffee where I'd get, you know, 10 to 15 founders together to, to meet for coffee and to sort of talk through things. Now, unfortunately, I started a new company. I started ExpenseBot at that point. And so my ability to be able to, to really keep that together um, went away. But after shutting down ExpenseBot in 2017, I was back to being unemployed or fun employed, as we call it. And, you know, I, I said, why don't I dedicate the next few years to try and making this sort of overall grassroots community more of a thing? And so that's what I've done. You know, my my friend Rakesh Guha, who you, you guys maybe know, and my wife and I, you know, just at the very beginning, we just invited 17 of our friends who were involved in startups to get together for dinner. And we kind of expected it'd be sort of a polite, hour-long dinner on the patio back when you could actually go places and eat. And we ended up literally closing Prosperity Social Club after like four hours of eating and drinking and talking amongst that group. And what struck me is at that dinner, which you know was an unmitigated success and a surprise to us, but what struck me is two or three people that I am good friends with did not know each other at all. And I was shocked by that fact because, you know, they should because they had startups that were in the same space or or whatever the case might be. And so after that, you know, Rakesh and Anna and I sort of looked at each other and went, well, maybe we need to do this more often. So, you know, we kind of just started to do those dinners every month. And, and from that point on, we had one of those dinners literally every month from August 2017 until... Gosh, I think February of 2020 was our last one before COVID. And so we we had one every month. And after this whole global pandemic thing is over, we'll go back to having them. But in addition to that, we started to do other events um, like co-founder speed dating, where we take, you know, 30 people who are interested in starting a company and literally give them four minutes with each other person. So it's like, you know, speed dating, but four co-founders and is loud and raucous and fast. And it made a lot of connections between people who that would have never existed. Uh, we started to do mentoring uh, events where mentors could get together for coffee with people. We started a mentoring program where actual founders of companies recently could mentor other people who are starting companies because peer mentoring to me is a very important tool. Uh, it's great to have a mentor program where someone who's been you know, leading a marketing firm for 30 years can give you some insight, but they don't remember what it's like to try to make payroll. And uh, so it has somewhat of a limited effect. And and we hold a, a big annual event called Founder Fest, where I think last year we had 130 some founders come together for most of a day and evening, you know, have dinner. And we had you know, panels and programs throughout the the afternoon and evening, really with one purpose. And that all of these things have one common denominator. And that is, it's really just meant to give a safe space for founders to uh, support each other, get to know each other, and, and uh, learn from one another, which is, um, if we go back to that original sort of thesis I laid out of other areas having uh, grassroots communities, that's all we're trying to do. We're just trying to build a sustainable community that is led by founders for other founders. And hopefully, as we go forward with Starting Clee, we've started to see small groups of people who are spinning out and doing other things. And we love it. We don't want to run that. 
you know, we, we want to see that happen. And that's ultimately my goal. I always joke about, I don't want to be the linchpin of our startup community. Like, I don't want to be in this position where I'm literally holding myself as a bridge between two gaps. I want to see that sort of divide heal. And I want to see, you know, people really get to know each other, support each other and have a continuous dialogue. And we're getting there. I'm excited about it. We seem to be getting closer and closer every day. So hopefully, you know, once we're allowed to be in the same rooms as one another, that will that will get back on track. Yeah, I look forward to that day <laughs> sometime soon, hopefully. I'll throw some personal gratitude your way as a beneficiary of starting Klee. Having moved here myself about four years ago now and, and you know, joined the entrepreneurial ecosystem here from scratch, if you will, without any you know, prior context or experience, I always kind of came to view the, the work you're doing as really important because the space is a little disconnected to, to someone new coming in. Uh, and, and I always appreciated how you're not afraid to say that perhaps, you know, Cleveland in, in parallel to some of the other cities is already a startup hub and that we just kind of need to get on beyond this pessimism of saying, maybe we'll turn it into one someday and instead, you know, recognize those that are building, creating, succeeding here. And in many ways, I think that's what Tegan and I are trying to do with this podcast is, you know, tell the stories of, of people building here. But with, with that aside, I know you mentioned you did not want to be the linchpin of, you know, bridging the gap, but I wanted to ask you about kind of a public role you've taken as like a defender of risk and a celebrator of failure in a way that I have not seen so ubiquitously amongst other people in this space. But I've seen you time and time again, just put yourself out there against the grain, pushing a mentality and a message that for some reason doesn't quite resonate in the way that I would expect it to. And so I'm just curious, you know, what, what is going on? Why, what's, what's going on here? <laughs> yeah. So I think there is a certain population of people who maybe view that advocacy, which is how I think of it as trolling, right? Or, or just being contrarian. But, you know, honestly, to me, you guys don't know me that well. If you did, you'd know like how deeply I feel about this. Like I, absolutely despise people who look down on entrepreneurs who fail because it is just, you know, I grew up in a family of small business owners, like on both sides of my family, my mom's side and my dad's side. My dad, you know, was owner of like, I think fourth generation of the family plumbing business, right? Like small business people work their asses off to just make a living, right? And entrepreneurs in in from a startup sense are are doing the same thing. They're putting themselves out there, they're taking a risk and they're trying to make something happen. And yes, they are looking forward to benefiting financially and personally from that, but they're also doing something that is necessary for our economy to have any modicum of growth, right? Like startups are the biggest driver of growth in any economy. Literally every study you can read says it. So when we put down founders who are not doing as well or accuse them of wrongdoing because they can't pay a loan that they took out or call them charlatans for losing investor money, like that is not how the rest of the world at least the successful parts of the world, think about it. They think about it as missed growth opportunities and they they view the entrepreneurs as the catalyst, right? Like the only growth opportunities uh, or the most important growth opportunities come from that catalyst. And so let's empower them. Let's support them. Let's give them the things they need. If their idea makes sense or they have any, any amount of traction, let's invest in them. Let's push these things forward. They're... Too many parties locally who spend a lot of time talking down to startups rather than talking with startups. And that is what has to change. Now, if you ask why I'm able to do that, frankly, it's because I have no intention of ever raising money from anyone locally ever again. And so the idea of 
of, of pissing off the powers that be has no consequence for me because uh, they're not going to hire me. They're not going to invest in any startups that I start. And so I can, I can say the things that a lot of other people are thinking. And believe you me, a lot of people are thinking them. But there is a certain amount of fear of retribution and belittling and, you know, consequence to being honest. And that has to change or nothing is ever going to change in our ecosystem. It's just going to be this continual, you know, leaning on a crutch. But uh, I think we have a long history in the Midwest of utilizing economic development initiatives and incentives, either, you know, from a, a investment perspective or a real estate perspective or a tax a deferral perspective to, you know, spur new business, to spur startups, to spur economic growth. And that works. I mean, absolutely it works. But from my perspective, it's a bit like a crutch, right? And if you break your ankle, having some crutches is pretty great to keep you going. But once that ankle starts to heal, if you're still leaning on those crutches, you know, you're never going to walk right again. And to me, as I've seen other healthy ecosystems who move along swimmingly uh, without economic development initiatives being the primary focus of the ecosystem, that's what I want for our region. I want the founders and the the grassroots aspect of um, the startup community to be the leaders. And I think it's it's high time for that. I think I covered most of what we were talking about. <laughs> yeah. I think we I think we caught it there. I, I'm curious then with all those items you've identified, the aversion to risk, the parties that be, if you will, and having experience in all these other cities around the country that have their own different, you know, ways of, of operating, you know, why is it that you've chosen not only to, to do this here in Cleveland, but devote really all your efforts in starting Cle to help others do that as well? Yeah, it's a simple answer because when I was getting started, I didn't have that. I didn't have a network of entrepreneurs that I could lean on or learn from. I didn't have an actual no-nonsense, up-to-date source of information or guidance or mentoring. And and so, I, you know, when I started my first company in earnest as, as a founder, which I think was in 2008, after being at, you know, the first company I was at for eight years, I had a lot of books that I had read and some podcast. well... Yeah, not really podcasts back then. And uh, blogs that I had, I had read, but I didn't have much else. And so I did a lot of floundering. I mean, uh, one of my earliest giant mistakes was I, I printed out a big, long 80-page business plan for my first idea, marked it confidential, and sent it off to like 20 VCs based in, in the Bay Area. And... I didn't know that if something's number one, marked confidential, they're not going to read it. And number two, they're just not going to read it anyway because it's an unsolicited business plan. Unsolicited? Yeah, unsolicited business plan. Um, (laughs) and, And I didn't know that. And so just having somebody to tell me not to waste my time on that would have been amazing. And so that's all I want is I just want, you know, with my personal mentoring, you know, and I'm, I'm probably mentoring 15 companies at a time anymore. Um, with my personal mentoring, like that's all I want to do is just give a source of, of information, uh, a shorter to cry on somebody you can text at 1am about something that went wrong. And, you know, I'll help any way I can. And sometimes the best way I can help is to just listen. So that's all I'm trying to accomplish. But, you know, for starting CLE, um, my goal, you know, and I alluded to this, my goal is that in the long term, we'll have, you know, lots of uh, leaders who um, take initiative and take their learnings and take, you know, the funds from the companies they've sold and take a portion of that and, and contribute it back to the community and help new startup founders who are struggling, help students who are interested in entrepreneurship, help you know, startup founders who are later stage and are looking at being acquired and don't know how to deal with that. That is that is what we should all hope for is like this virtuous uh, cycle of entrepreneurs who just keep helping one another until, you know, we get to wherever we're going. 
I do have a couple thoughts on why people leave the city. A good friend of mine, who we mentioned earlier, Rakesh Guha, who started Start and Clee with me, moved to the Bay Area last year, late last year. And you kind of have to look at him and say, here's a guy who's an incredibly talented developer, you know, bought a house here and rents it out, has tons of friends here, and is working very hard for the benefit of our region with, with Start and Clee, and ultimately ultimately made the decision to leave our region for the Bay Area. And and so, you know, a lot of people have asked me not only about him, but he's a good example, like why are so many promising entrepreneurs leaving our area? And to me, uh, I've had conversations with so many of them that a, a couple of themes have really have really come to the fore. And I harp on these a lot, so forgive me. But th- the first is, top line income. So if you look at startups, a lot of the most successful startups, look at Uber, are only worried about top line revenue, right? They don't care about profit. They don't care about um, really anything except for that top line number of revenue. And that's a certain mindset that exists, right? That mindset exists in people as well. And so if we look at these incredibly successful startups who are only focused on top line revenue and we want to have them here, which is, I think we can all agree is something that everybody wants, then we need to appeal to those people with that mindset. And what doesn't appeal in that case is a low cost of living with a low income. So yes, proportionally, we might pay less of our income on rent or on owning a house here. But because the cost of living is so low, our incomes are so low. And so when a new college graduate who's in an engineering program and trying to figure out what they want to do with their life looks at that and they say, okay, I can make $80,000 a year out of school as a, you know, Uh, entry-level, associate-level developer at Progressive or whatever the case might be. And then they look at uh, associate engineer levels at Google or Facebook or Twitter or Uber or any of these other companies. And they say, oh, I can make $150,000 a year right out of school plus Fifty to a hundred thousand dollars a year in stock in a publicly traded company in several cases. So even though that person is going to have to pay two thousand, three thousand dollars a month, or have some roommates, you know, in South Emission uh, in in San Francisco or San Jose or wherever, that's not even in their minds. They're not even thinking about that side of things. What they're thinking about is that opportunity for them to generate wealth for their life immediately out of school that they do not have working a day job with no equity opportunity for 70 or $80,000. And so that's number one, that's just pay people more. Like that's the number one thing we can do is just pay people more. Not that hard. I mean, it's hard, but it's not that hard to understand. Um, The second thing is valuations. If that you know, same person five or 10 years into their career says, I wanna start a company. Well, then they've got some interesting data to look at because, you know, my study, which is non-scientific but accurate, into average valuations by HQ state of the company, like what, what state the company is headquartered in, Ohio is 41 out of 53 with the territories. And that is incredibly bad. If you start a company here or start the same company, theoretically, in the Bay Area, we are a far different, a far cry from from the same situation. So if I'm going to start that new company and and I can get a $1 million valuation for that new company here, I'm very likely to be able to get a valuation something like five or $7 million for that same company in the Bay Area. Now, again, not purely scientific. There's a hard, it's hard to have one-to-one data on that, but it's undeniably different. So I'm not sure how you keep a startup founder who's mostly worried about what kind of outcome financially they're going to have from their company. Um, And the third thing we all know, which is quality of life, right? Transit is incredibly important. We don't have enough of it. 
Uh, city services, even if you live in the suburbs, are challenging. You know, all of these same things that anybody would want. You can look at the indexes. You can look at the best places to live lists. We're not at the top. And so I, unfortunately, when I look at Start and Clee and all the efforts that we have around um, helping entrepreneurs, one of the things we think about a lot is retaining talent and retaining entrepreneurs who want to start companies. And these three things, particularly, really are, are putting us behind the eight ball. And I'm not sure what exactly we can do about it in the short term, but we really do need to address them. On the flip side of that coin, you know, painting a, an optimistic picture, how do you think about the things that Cleveland is doing uh, particularly well? Yeah, so we have, we have a couple of great industries, right? And this is really, this is a focus we have, right? Around healthcare, around insurance, around XYZ, but these particular industries that we're extremely strong in, that strength can attract companies from all over, right? Like Youngstown is doing with 3D printing and material science, you know, is attracting companies from outside our region. I think that's really important. I, I mean, if you have family here, then you have an incredibly good reason to be here. If you have an interest in, you know, sports, we've got three major league teams here, right? Like we're not great sports mecca, but we're sports mecca. There's definitely a good quali- quality of life to be had if you want to raise your kids in a safe place that's you know clean and uh, the air is not very poor quality every day. Like it, this is a great place to be, and we see that more and more. Like we're seeing more and more people who have fully remote jobs or run businesses that are remote, and those organizations or, or customers don't care where you're located. That's an incredible opportunity to live somewhere like Cleveland, where you've got a really low cost of living, the ability to have a mansion for all intents and purposes compared to other places in our country for for a, so, a small amount of money and to, to you know, raise your kids in a safe place that has great culture. We've got a ton going for us. It's just in a very particular focus. When you look at startups and high growth startups, you, you have different indices that you need to look at than these areas that we're really strong in. So I'm not pessimistic on Cleveland. Don't get me wrong. I've been here and stayed here for a long time, but Going back to one of our earlier discussions, as a product manager or a designer, I'm constantly thinking about how we can improve. What are the areas that we can make things better? How can we bring these numbers up if we want to? And there's no point in not facing the realities associated with them. There's no point in setting those aside. It's much better if we address them head on. Yeah, for me, Venture for America brought me to Cleveland And after being furloughed due to COVID-19, I'm still choosing to stay here for a lot of those reasons that you say people choose to move to cities and grow businesses. And so for you, how do you see the city of Cleveland growing? Because that's something that I'm excited to be a part of. Yeah, I think we've got a lot of really good momentum on our side in a lot of areas. Um, I'm actually really excited to see our our region's response to uh, the pandemic. Like I've actually honestly been fairly surprised by how it's been handled. And that's, that's exciting. You know, I think we have a lot of really interesting uh, developments happening in downtown. We've got increasingly more community, um, not only in startups, but just generally bridging the sort of east-west divide. Um, I don't know if you guys have been in Cleveland long enough to sort of know that there's like this unspoken don't make someone who lives on the east side drive to the west side because they won't sort of of dynamic here. But I think that's getting uh, to be less and less strident every day. You know, to me, one of our biggest strengths here is parks. Like I love being outdoors and especially in the situation we all find ourselves in, being able to be outside and safe, having fresh air is incredibly important. Even before COVID, it was it was a situation where I can I live on the west side out by Cracker Park and I can be at five parks in ten minutes. And I mean parks nice. where I can hike. You know, and that's that's amazing. I, I don't know many other areas where you where you have that opportunity. Is that the national parks or is this something different? 
it's all state and county parks. So I live just on the border of Cuyahoga and Lorain counties and Lorain uh, Metro parks are really great. And then, you know, obviously like Lakewood has uh, Lakewood park with the solstice steps and there's just a ton of really great places to go that honestly, I think a lot of people just don't even know exist. There are so many people who I've kind of been a tour guide for. And that's one of the favorite, my favorite things to do is to take people to a park on the lake and they just don't understand how big Lake Erie is. And it's always fun to, to watch them uh, sort of realize that situation or, you know, being able to ride a bike along a river for, you know, hours and hours on end is surprising to people sometimes. So, you know, I think we've got a lot going for us in that regard too. Our, uh, our hope is that over time, we will paint a collective collage from uh, our participants of what resonates with them most about Cleveland. And you certainly just touched on a handful of items there. But if you had to, to drill down and, and pick your favorite component, what would that be? Yeah, I mean, I would say parks, but I do like to eat. And when, <laughs> when we're allowed... You know, I think our restaurants are, you know, having lived in Chicago for a while, which is also a Midwestern city that has incredible restaurants. Like, I honestly feel like we have so much to offer in that regard. And I absolutely love it. I think a lot of people will say that for you as you as you go through this process, because it's just, you know, a standout. But aside from that, parks are just amazing. Have you guys lived in other cities of equal level of, of Cleveland? Uh, I grew I grew up in New York City. I grew up in Atlanta. <laughs> so you're both you're both you've both experienced cities that are a tier higher than Cleveland, right? New York maybe a few so. But so I mean it's hard to argue with New York food, right? But you know, there is a different sort of way of living associated with Chicago, New York. I haven't spent too much time in Atlanta, but I assume is very similar. Houston, LA, San Francisco, like there is a laid backness to uh, Cleveland, uh, sort of a, a calm comparatively and a friendliness that exists that I, I haven't really experienced anywhere else. And I think that's really indicative of just who we are. That Midwestern nice is kind of really true. Like it's, it's a thing at least from my perspective. So yeah, I'm interested to know who else you're going to talk to and what they say, but I'll get to hear as they, as they say it. Before you go, if people have any questions or things they'd like to follow up with you about, where can they find you? Yeah, so I'm just E. Buchholz on Twitter, E-B-U-C-H-H-O-L-Z. Got to get both H's in there. And I usually, my DMs are open and I usually respond. Otherwise, you can you can hit me up at ed at startinclee.com is my direct email for Start and Clee. And then, you know, feel free to check out Running Out of Runway. It's written content with a podcast and a YouTube channel of all the same stuff. So any way you like to enjoy that, it's there for you. And, you know, I, I basically just tried to take a lot of the learnings that I tried to impart when I'm mentoring companies and put it in sort of a package that anybody can see and, and look at when the time is right for them. So, you know, if you've got a question like, should I start a company with my best friend? We, we tried to cover that topic as an example. So it's important, I think, to just have perspectives. So yeah, feel free to, to hit me up on any of those. I'm always happy to be helpful where I can be. Thank you so much for coming and sharing your background and story today. We really appreciate having you on. Thanks so much for having me. It was a lot of fun and I'm super excited for what you guys do in the future. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So shoot us an email at layoftheland.upside.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland, at thetagan, or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please email us or find us on Twitter and let us know. And if you love our show, please leave a review on iTunes. That goes a long way in helping us spread the word and continue to help bring high quality guests to the show. Jeff and I decided there were a couple of things we wanted to share with you at the end of the podcast. And so here we go. Tegan Horton and Jeffrey Stern developed the Lay of the Land podcast in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, we did not own equity or other financial interests in the companies which appear on this show 
unless otherwise indicated. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinions of Founders Get Funds and its affiliates or actual and its affiliates or any entity which employ us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. We have not considered your specific financial situation nor provided any investment advice on this show. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next week.